Hello, I'm Jason Rugard of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. Welcome to a special summer show. Every Friday, I'll be taking a week-by-week look back at the summer of 1995. This was a box office season that was amongst the most competitive and influential in movie-going history. On each show, I'll be chronicling the performance, critical response, and historical relevance of the biggest hits and costliest misfires that shaped the summer of 1995. Episode 2, May 26th to the 29th, 1995. Our first film is Casper. For 100 years, he has wandered the halls of Whipstaff Manor. Waiting for someone. There's a girl on my bed. Yes. Uh, hi. Casper. Can you go invisible? <laughs> that was easy. Now, life at Whipstaff Manor. Can I keep you? Will never be the same. Cool. Ghosts can't hurt you. Don't come near me, you spiteful spook. We share haunting stories, we throw parties. The parties are always pretty dead, though. I feel like Oprah on hiatus. What the hell do you think you're doing? We have company. Well, company loves misery. Take a drink. Get a grave. Dad. Your pants before they fall. <laughs> you guys are disgusting, obnoxious creeps. Thank you. Universal Pictures and Evelyn Entertainment. Are we scary or what? Invite you on a wild, wondrous ride. Hurry up, come on! To the other side. Casper. Casper captured the top spot on the box office charts for the long Memorial Day weekend that used to serve as the first official weekend of the summer movie-going season. Its opening weekend gross of $22 million, or $40 million adjusted, was a big surprise as forecasters weren't anticipating such healthy returns. Casper would spend nearly two months in the top 10. Its $100 million gross or about $172 million in today's money, placed it fourth amongst the summer's highest grossing movies. This continued a trend that the summer's biggest hits were early season releases. The bountiful Memorial Day weekend audiences were expected as this traditionally served as the official start of the movie-going season. Casper's box office success isn't the film's only memorable attribute. The movie secured a place in cinema history as having the first fully CGI character in a leading role. Steven Spielberg, who served as producer, was in the process of adapting Casper the Friendly Ghost and sought out the directing abilities of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles director, Steve Barron. But Barron turned down the gig, so Spielberg gave the nod to Brad Siberling, based on his work on TV. J.J. Abrams did an uncredited rewrite of the script, which controversially gave a backstory to the character of Casper. Following the success of Casper, screenwriter Simon Wells was commissioned to pen a screenplay for the sequel tentatively titled Casper 2. However, 
The film languished in development hell until July 2000 when the project was officially declared dead, reportedly due to disappointing sales from the two direct-to-video follow-up prequels that premiered in 1997 and 1998. I've never seen this movie as I was 16 at the time of the release and was far more interested in seeing any of the other wide releases that summer. In their intervening years, I've come close to watching the film but have never pulled the trigger. To make matters worse, in doing research for this episode, I came to realize that I actually own the movie on DVD. So I promised myself that I'll give it a view sometime in the next 25 years. I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. Our first movie is the new special effects comedy, Casper, based on the comic books about everyone's favorite friendly ghost. Casper is not very original as a story, but as an exercise in visual imagination, it's superb. Yeah, that's exactly the basis on which I like yeah. it. And it is the look of the picture. The three uncles, I mean, these are a, this is a real major achievement in, in uh, special effects work. And they're absolutely entertaining. They kick the story into high gear every time they come on screen. You would almost want to go back and just study how they're done and how they're drawn. They're very exciting. And at the center, I like the story of the little boy ghost who... Uh, wants to be loved and can't I, that's always yeah. that's the but you're right the story with the daughter and all that yeah it's the special effects and you know when you see these four ghosts who each have their own personalities you realize just a few more bits or bites in that computer and they'll be closer to their dream of being able to create human figures human figures you know yeah. throw in Marilyn Monroe that's the, and Humphrey Bogart those are the two they always mention right. I mean these these creatures is, are pretty real oh it's very impressive work yeah. our next film is Braveheart. I love you. Always have. I want to marry you. And I you. You and no other. I came back home to raise crops and a family. If I can live in peace, I will. more merciful than they have been. We'll spare the women and the children. For all else, no mercy. I want this Wallace's heart on a plate. Where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Well, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. Go back to England and tell them Scotland is free. They may take our lives. But they'll never take our freedom! Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Braveheart debuted in the third spot for the weekend, coming in with 13 million. 22 million adjusted, and ending with 75 million, or over $127 million today. This was over the course of a theatrical run that spanned 55 weeks. Braveheart played in cinemas for over a year. This was largely in part due to its awards season notoriety. The film received 10 Oscar nominations and secured five wins, including Best Director for Gibson and the coveted Best Picture statue. Gibson found the script early in 1993, but was initially interested in directing only, and considered up-and-coming star Brad Pitt 
to take on the role of William Wallace. But these plans never materialized, and Gibson eventually agreed to star as well as direct in the project. But financing was difficult to secure, despite the fact that Gibson was one of the era's largest movie stars. Warner Brothers was willing to fund the project if Gibson agreed to sign on for another Lethal Weapon sequel. But he refused, and Gibson eventually gained enough financing through Paramount Pictures to start physical production late in 1994. By the time the filmmakers hit post-production, the movie had already run into trouble. First, Gibson was forced to recut the film's battle scenes to avoid a dreaded NC-17 rating from the MPAA. Then he and editor Steve Rosenblum were instructed by Paramount studio heads that the movie's 195-minute runtime be cut down to a more reasonable 177 minutes. According to a 2016 interview with Mel Gibson, conducted by Collider, there is a four-hour version of the film somewhere in the vaults of Paramount, and given the opportunity, Gibson would be interested in delivering a director's cut if all parties involved were still interested. As of this recording in 2020, there has been no movement on the project. Still, despite the numerous historical inaccuracies, many consider Braveheart to be a superior sword and sandals film, ranking it above Gladiator and other similar epics from the era. Mel Gibson plays William Wallace, a 13th century Scotsman who led his countrymen against the English in Braveheart, a new epic filled with blood, thunder, romance, and history. Braveheart is the second movie this season about warrior Scotsman. The first was Rob Roy. I liked them both for different reasons. Rob Roy was more cerebral and down-to-earth, showing the brutish living conditions of the time and making us feel how exhausting a sword fight really is. Braveheart is more in the tradition of great Hollywood action epics and swashbucklers with thousands of thundering hooves, rivers of blood, and a charismatic hero. It's a very ambitious film and a good one. Mel Gibson, who not only stars but directs, has a sure hand for adventure. I like it too, Roger. I think that this film is also pretty gritty, actually, and what I liked about it is that he showed how dirty mm -hmm. and how brutal life was in the 13th century. I don't think this is that rom romanticized uh, medieval time period that you might be referring to with other epics. I thought that was, in fact, I thought it was kind of bold. This guy, Mel Gibson, obviously a mainstream hero. He could have made a, a, a real mainstream picture. That This is a pretty rough film. It's very intense, and I thought it was pretty bold of him to do it that yeah, way. Yeah, and the art direction is good, too. Those very. kind of crude wooden forts yes. and so forth that they have up there on the further borders of the English Empire. Yeah. Very interesting. He's breaking a little ground there, I think. Our next film is Johnny Mnemonic. The year is 2021. It is no longer safe to transmit information. Phones, computers, and satellites are all vulnerable, but there is a solution. Your storage capacity? I can carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. Input the data into the brain of a human courier, like Johnny Mnemonic. Hit me. all that in your head anyway. I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. You had to dump a chunk of what? My childhood. What are you doing? Making a long-distance phone call. I've got the goods, Ralphie. Now I just want to get them out of my head. Now, in a future... We locked on him. ...where those who control the information control the world. 
I've been charged with recovering the head of the mnemonic courier. Everyone wants what is stored in Johnny's head. I'm a dead man if I don't get this out of my head. If I can get it out. How? A cranial drill and a pair of forceps. For the future's most wanted fugitive, Keanu Reeves. You can't shoot me. Not in the head. Johnny Mnemonic. Keanu Reeves' highly anticipated follow-up to the smash hit Speed was the disappointing Johnny Mnemonic. This cyberpunk adaption of William Gibson's novel placed sixth for the weekend, coming in with $7.5 million, or $13 million adjusted, and spent a brief three weeks in the top ten before disappearing from theaters with a scant gross of $19 million, or around $32 million today, which didn't even cover its $26 million budget. Johnny Mnemonic was unable to gain traction with audiences, and while the film fared slightly better on home video, it has long been considered an outright failure. The film's director, Robert Longo, and author, William Gibson, initially set out to make an art film with a budget of about $1.5 million. But when Columbia acquired the rights and Reeves became attached, the budget ballooned to $26 million. An interesting aspect to the picture is that the movie was released early in Japan, and that cut differs from the version released in the United States. Most notable is that the Brad Fidel score used in the American version was rescored by Michael Dana for the version released abroad. The tone of the film was also greatly altered before its stateside premiere. Author William Gibson was quoted in 1998 saying, It was taken away and recut by the American distributor. It was the last month of its pre-release life and it went from being a very funny, very alternative piece of work to being something that had been very unsuccessfully chopped and cut into something more mainstream. Johnny Mnemonic was heavily promoted by Sony as a film project that could incorporate all their media branches. While Sony Pictures released the film, its soundtrack was released by Sony's subsidiary Columbia Records, and the corporate's digital effects division Sony Imagework issued a CD-ROM game version for DOS, Mac, and Windows 3. Praise must be given to Sony for realizing the potential to reach their target demographic through an early version of internet marketing, and its new technology division promoted the film with an online scavenger hunt offering up to $20,000 in prize. The early use of online marketing fit perfectly with the film's themes and visuals. In addition to the box office failure, the film received scathing critical reviews, and the film holds a dismal 14% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Reeves' performance in the movie earned him a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actor. This downturn in Reeves' career would continue with a series of unfortunate missteps including Chain Reaction and Feeling Minnesota, before rebounding with The Matrix, which would cement the actor's status as an iconic movie star. The years since Johnny Mnemonic's release have not been kind. There are some interesting ideas, elements, and moments contained in this garbled mess of a film. The highly touted visual effects pale next to the imaginative marvels that populate Casper and other films of the summer. Johnny Mnemonic was the first big misfire and an early casualty of the summer season. That's Keanu Reeves from Speed and his problem in the movie Johnny Mnemonic. He's carrying information implanted in his brain. That's his job. But he's got so much info embedded in his noggin that it could kill him if agents from an evil corporation don't do it first. Obviously, the computer cyberspace revolution is a fertile territory for all kinds of movies, but 
How exciting can a movie be that takes place in somebody's head or inside of a machine? That's the challenge of Johnny Mnemonic, and that's why Johnny Mnemonic, despite all of its high-tech gadgets, breaks down into more of a traditional action picture than I think it would like to be. The mix of standard movie elements and new technology just didn't gel. Well, I agree with you pretty much right down the line on this. If no. you look at the plot, it's a guy has a lot of something valuable and wants to go from A to B within the mob wants it too and they're going to chase him there and the girl helps him and also in the 21st century the notion that you couldn't encrypt this material and squirt it by satellite anywhere you wanted to in right. a second which uh, is being done all the time which is being done right and will, now and will be done yeah, so by any intelligence agency in the future of course so in the 21st century this wouldn't be a problem there is one thing I liked, and that is some of the computer graphics. For example, uh, in virtual reality, when he manages to physically get inside the Internet and move things around, okay. that's good looking. But the movie doesn't have, the plot doesn't have the Nothing. imagination to deserve those sorts of graphics. Our last film is Mad Love. Dude, check that out. She's new. She must be. Babes like that don't grow in Seattle. Talk to her yet? You haven't even talked to her? Matt, advice? Talk to her, because it's like one of those necessary steps. Let's go somewhere. We're not supposed to be leaving during school hours. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> well, I know that you've got responsibilities here, and now you've met this girl and nothing else seems to matter. Sometimes, the best plan is no plan at all. We have the whole country to run around. We gotta know where we're going. We make our own rules. We go where the wind takes us. And the best direction is anywhere. Casey, come on. Trust me, I'm getting just too straight. Why am I doing this? No way. Gift for you. How'd you pay for it? Your dad's card. Damn it, Casey, you didn't. Well, what's the big deal? I mean, he'll get free air miles. Touchstone Pictures presents Chris O'Donnell, Drew Barrymore. This is forever, isn't it? Yes. This is forever. In a film about what scares us. If you had the choice to know whether you're going to die or not to know, what would you choose? Mad Love. Mad Love snuck into the weekend top 10, arriving in the seventh spot on the charts. The film spent one single weekend on the charts before vanishing from theaters. It opened with 7 million, around 11 and a half today, and ended with 15, or about $26 million adjusted. Before quickly appearing on video store shelves, where it reached more people than it had during its brief theatrical run. Around the time of Mad Love's release, Barrymore, who was 19, posed nude for the January issue of Playboy. Three weeks later, she made an infamous appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman. Barry climbed onto David Letterman's desk, flashed her breast, and kissed him on the cheek as a birthday present. This media hype gave the actress a certain credibility with teenage girls, who were clearly the target audience. Leonardo DiCaprio turned down the role, which led to Chris O'Donnell being cast opposite Barrymore as the all-American suburban kid. Mad Love isn't a very good movie, and it doesn't hold up particularly well. The 90s soundtrack, wardrobe, and attitude make the film feel dated and uninteresting. 
That'll do it for today's show. Join us next week where I'll be looking back at the weekend of June 2nd, 1995. The next movie and our next film has the provocative title Mad Love and stars a couple of youthful heavyweights, Chris O'Donnell, Al Pacino's young co-star and son of a woman, and Drew Barrymore, who's been taking on some daring roles. But this picture, as it kept on reeling, had me asking, what's this movie really about? Barrymore plays a girl with some emotional well, problems. She argues with her verbally yeah. abusive dad. She dances wildly to rock music Real? in her room. And all of this is seen well, through the lens of a telescope by her Seattle neighbor, well, Chris O'Donnell, playing a straight kid who is mesmerized by her wildness. On the most obvious level, I suppose mad love is a warning to kids about not romanticizing emotional illness. Suicide is not painless. But I thought Mad Love stacked the deck against her dad and also that it did glamorize her rebellion for the sake of audience entertainment value. I know that the director and writer and stars of this picture are serious talents, but I think Mad Love is pretty phony. I was really impressed by how phony it wasn't. I think it's very interesting wow. how the Chris O'Donnell character is a responsible kid right? who realizes too late that he's in over his head with a woman who has real big problems and then tries to behave toward her, toward her parents, and toward the world in a responsible way.